Hello, this is Paul Mackey, and this is the One Idget's Thoughts on podcast. This is the last of the series of Digest episodes before I get back to each of the series I have going. Those series are Gravity Falls, continuing on from last episode's Digest, and The Rockford Files, which continues after this episode. The one thing I did not yet reveal is what will be happening next in the third spot of the rotation, as Men With Brooms was a single full season, fully concluded in its Digest. The new series I will be announcing soon. I have a couple of candidate series, but there's an additional X-Factor, which will make that decision clear to me. No, that's not a clue. It isn't the lone gunman, though I wouldn't be against that one if I could get my hands on it sometime. This last Digest episode will cover the pilot and first eight episodes of The Rockford Files, as previously heard on the YouTube version of this podcast. You'll hear some topics about what seems totally 70s, find out about some cultural artifacts I spotted during the episodes, hear brief bios of interesting people, and as always, find out what I thought worked in the episodes, and perhaps what did not. After this digest, I will resume the regular cycle of shows so you can expect the next podcast to come down the feed to be much shorter. But meanwhile, on with the slightly older content. Hello, I'm Paul Mackey, an idiot with one foot in the past. Not too distantly in the past, however, just far enough back that my memories are faint or non-existent. We're going to the 70s. Not that 70s show, though I can see why you'd think that. No, we're going to watch The Rockford Files, which I handily enough have a box set of DVDs for the complete series right here. I'm particularly interested in the cultural artifacts presented. I have, as mentioned earlier, hazy real-life memories of some of the 70s, and not at all of the early 70s. I was born in 1973, so the pilot movie aired a couple of months before my first birthday, with a series premiere when I was roughly one and a half years old. I'm hoping as the show goes along, I'll spot things that will ring the faintest of bells. I'm also pretty unfamiliar with what network television looked like in 1974. Were all the women either mothers or temptresses? Were there people of color on this show with a white male lead? And if so, did any of them rise beyond cliché and caricature? I mean, that was a problem observed on Buffy in the 90s and Supernatural up close to the present, so I can only imagine. So I'll summarize, give high points and low points, talk staff, and hopefully a few other things each episode. As we get started, I should say I've watched the first seven or so episodes a few years back when they were still on Netflix, though it was fairly passive viewing, pausing to fetch laundry, folding that laundry, or cooking or various other things while the show played. I wouldn't be trying to crack the mystery for these first episodes then, but I'll give it a shot. All of this I'm writing before embarking on the current viewing, by the way. I have the full series box set here on my desk. I know there were a series of follow-up movies, and I don't have those at this point. I haven't calculated how long I will be doing this, assuming a three-show three rotation twice a week, but in any case, I have plenty of time to acquire them if I feel they are necessary. We are kicking off with the pilot movie. I know it was cut into two episodes for syndication package, but I'm not sure how it'll be presented here. The disc says Backlash of the Hunter Parts 1 and 2, which could mean anything. The syndication releases, the movie restored to its original condition, or something in between. I'll find out soon enough. The pilot movie aired, so far as I can tell, titled simply The Rockford Files, on Wednesday, March 27, 1974, on NBC at 8 p.m. 7 Central. It aired in a 90-minute time slot against CBS's The Sunny and Cher Comedy Hour, followed by Canon, and ABC's one-season series The Cowboys, followed by a TV movie called Female Artillery. 
Well, I'm going to watch this episode and get back to you before you even know I'm gone. I'm back. Looks like this DVD set has the pilot in two-part syndication version titled Backlash of the Hunter, but I've decided to watch both together for our purposes here. I'll let you know how awkward the split is, if at all. Okay, I'm going to go watch for real. A brief summary. A man is killed at the beach. He appears to be a random wino, but Sarah Butler hires Jim Rockford to look into it. The man was her father, and she's convinced it was not random. This leads Rockford deep into a case involving a Vegas wedding, a dead rich guy, an impersonation, and eventually an attempt on Jim and Sarah's lives. All right, so I'm going to see if I can get by using just a little audio from the show on YouTube. If it didn't work, you'll hear my voice next. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. Billings, LAPD. You know Thursday is Chapman's 20th year, and we're giving a little surprise party at the captain's. I think you should come. By the way, we need five bucks for the present. So I'm wondering about this one. The opening of both parts of the pilot movie have that message. But I'm guessing the movie probably had an opening that is lost to time at this point, or no opening at all, and this one was created later for the syndication package. So... Is this answering machine gag created for the syndication, or a reused one from later on? Are there over 100 unique answering machine gags? And if they reused any, will I even notice? I mean, even regular viewers had whole summers between seasons to forget what's been done before. Would they have even noticed? Alright, who is? For the who is segment, there are many people to choose from. I'll have a long time to get around to James Garner. So I looked at who was here just in this episode. First up would be Lindsay Wagner, the bionic woman herself, though this was her first TV appearance following her successful movie role in The Paper Chase, preceded by a series of single-episode appearances on television. Then I considered Bill Moomy, here as a young adult, following after his child career as Will Robinson on Lost in Space, and before working in the group Barnes & Barnes, producing songs like the inimitable Fishheads. Eat them up, young! I considered Robert Donnelly, appearing as Rockford's father, Rocky, only in this pilot. He did fine in the role, but they apparently always wanted his replacement in the role, Noah Beery Jr., but Beery had a previous series commitment that ended between production of the pilot and commencement of the series. So I'll go in greater depth on Michael Lerner, who just passed away April 8th of this year. Michael Lerner is a character actor, and when he appeared as the Las Vegas doctor in this episode, I immediately took notice saying, oh, that guy. He appeared in several Coen Brothers films, most notably Barton Fink in the role of Jack Lipnick, earning an Oscar nomination for Supporting Actor. If you've watched Elf every year, you'll recognize him as the CEO of the publishing company. He played Arnold Rothstein in Eight Men Out and many other character roles in both movies and television, including Dr. Seelman here, but stretching back before the Rockford Files in shows like Match, The Bob Newhart Show, That Girl, The Brady Bunch, among many others. And uh, as a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I can't help but point out that his brother is Ken Lerner, who played Principal Flutie. All right, next section is called This Aged Poorly. I was kind of casting about in my notes for a while for, during the first part of this episode. Rockford's treatment of Sarah was sexist at points, that kind of thing. Until one moment stood out as the thing that definitely aged poorly. When a guy is taunting another guy into a fight, he could insult the guy's mother or call him dumb. 
like Rockford leads in with on the confrontation in the men's room, or he could just drop a big old slur, the way you just couldn't do it on television anymore. I'm talking about the Q word, the word the gay community has pretty successfully taken back and claimed with pride, but I'll decline to repeat here. If I'd been drinking a beverage, I might have gotten a spit take out of me. Okay, the next section is called Totally 70s. And under Totally 70s, I thought all the cars, really, except I saw them all as just old cars, and I couldn't really tell which ones were meant to be expensive, high class, and which ones were ordinary for the most part. There's probably car enthusiasts out there who'll be disappointed I do not appreciate some classic early 70s models. Also totally 70s, I'm not sure when TV shows stopped doing it, so it could be an 80s thing as well, but there's a collection of scenes from the episode that airs immediately before the show begins, a recap that comes before you see it, a precap, if you will. Okay, the next section is Artifactoids. This episode was packed with interesting LA location work, and I don't know if the series will carry on with such unique choices when pushed down into a weekly series shooting schedule. For example, there's Tale of the Pup, the novelty hot dog stand that looks itself like a hot dog on a bun. This LA landmark was built in 1946. It's an icon of a category that's apparently called mimetic architecture, but of course I just call really big things. Tale of the Pup was apparently almost demolished in the 1980s, resulting in a relocation, but still it eventually closed in 2005 and was warehoused for a number of years. It was then declared an L.A. cultural landmark, donated to a museum, and eventually purchased to reopen on Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood in July 2022. The aforementioned bathroom confrontation is supposed to occur in the bathroom of the Mayfair Music Hall, although it's probably a set. But the music hall was real. It was built as the Santa Monica Opera House in 1910, quickly renamed the Majestic, and began presenting films. In 1972, it was reimagined as a Victorian music hall called the Mayfair, where British-style musical variety shows were performed. Shortly before Rockford filmed, a little dance performance of Putin on the Ritz was filmed there for some movie called Young Frankenstein. Later, it housed L.A.'s Second City Troop, but it was severely damaged in the Northridge earthquake of 1994, and the interior was gutted by the owner. In a Google Street View from February 2022, it is now apparently a shoe store. What worked? I think it worked well as a pilot for a detective series. There was a murder up front, a beautiful client who isn't telling the full truth, at least as far as being able to pay Jim. There were airplanes and machine guns. There was a somewhat hasty hookup between P.I. and client that was probably mostly there to sell the series. And there were explosions. What more could NBC ask for? And personally, I enjoyed the Los Angeles setting. The cultural landscape, if you will. I even liked the drugstore interior where Bill Moomy's character Nick worked. If there didn't end up being all those landmarks later on, I'd been preparing to see if there was anything I could say about the products in the background. They were in the dental care aisle, apparently. What didn't work? I didn't really get Jerry Grimes' connection to the widow Elias. I understood he had a stake in the crime itself, but it was less clear why he was still around working for her, especially the way he was treating her. I guess I was assuming she had more power, but I suppose that assumption is grounded 50 years in the future from the setting of this episode. So, that's it for the first episode of The Rockford Files. Hopefully I can find enough tidbits in subsequent episodes to keep this interesting. There are only 118 episodes to go and eight follow-up films from the 90s. Whew. All right. Next time we check into the 1970s, we'll begin the series proper with the episode titled The Kirkhoff Case. Happy hunting! 
So her shop was really a bikini shop? Just one kind of garment. Huh. Things are back in full swing here, and I'm moving on to the actual non-pilot first episode of The Rockford Files. This episode aired on NBC September 13th, 1974, Friday night at 9, 8 central. The lead-in show was Chico and the Man, and it was airing against the CBS Friday night movie and the last half hour of The Six Million Dollar Man, followed by The Texas Wheelers on ABC. The episode title is The Kirkoff Case, and I'm going to go watch it and get back to you instantaneously later. The first thing I noticed was Abe Vigoda in the pre-show teaser. Apparently, he was not a big enough name to feature in top-of-show credits. Oh, and speaking of credits, the credits are intact on this episode, by which I mean the syndication cut-down pilot credits had some live footage edited in to cover any images of Rocky as played by Noah Beery Jr., The clips had seemed odd before, and now I can see why they were there. I would love to see how the movie opening looked before the syndication, but I imagine that is lost or very difficult to find. Brief summary. When the episode starts out, Jim is following a cowboy. After flirting with a girl on a remote section of beach, he accepts the offer of a drink at her place up the road, but it turns out she is in cahoots with the cowboy and slips Rockford a mickey. Rockford is on a case for Larry Kirkhoff, played by James Woods, looking for his parents' killer, though Kirkhoff is generally thought to be that killer, as far as everyone from the press to the police believe. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. Jim, it's Norma at the market. It bounced. You want us to tear it up, send it back, or put it with the others? Who is? I mentioned Abe Vigoda earlier, and the other prominent guest star who actually did score a top-of-show credit was James Woods, but I don't think I need to go too far into either of those gentlemen. The female lead guest star was Julie Summers, who did lots of guest spots through the 80s before settling in for 95 episodes of Matlock. Today, however, I'm going to go into the series creator Roy Huggins. Roy started out as a novelist, but when one of his novels was optioned by Columbia, he entered into a contract to adapt it, and then he transitioned into showbiz. He was a writer with Columbia until 1955, and then moved to Warner Brothers as a producer, where his most notable works included creating Maverick with James Garner, 77 Sunset Strip, and The Fugitive. In 1960, he was hired at 20th Century Fox as VP of TV production, then moved to the same role at Universal Television a couple of years later. There, he produced shows like The Virginian and Beretta, and created The Rockford Files. Huggins and co-creator Stephen J. Cannell wrote Rockford as a modern-day version of Brett Maverick, written specifically for James Garner, based on Huggins' previous program with Garner, Maverick. Cannell and Huggins wrote many of the first season's stories, but eventually Huggins was forced out. It seems he was doing rewrites on an episode during shooting and rushed the pages to set. James Garner had trouble working out what was going on, and it turned out nobody in production had any idea there were new script pages, and nobody on the team had reviewed them. Huggins had a practice of writing under the name John Thomas James once he was also a studio executive, and Mr. James had his last story by credit on Season 1, Episode 19. He did move on later in the 80s to write episodes of Hunter and got a taste of all of the derivative works from his earlier creations, the Maverick movie with Mel Gibson, the Fugitive movie with Harrison Ford, the U.S. Marshals movie with Tommy Lee Jones, and many others. He passed away of natural causes in 2002 at age 87. 
All right, the This Aged Poorly section. Again, lots of smoking and somewhat poor attitude towards women, but nothing as blatant as that line in the pilot. And now we'll move into Totally 70s. I guess I'll go with that cedar shake paneling at Tonya Baker's apartment. I'm not sure what's going on there. It looks like an exterior wall covering, but they're indoors. I know the 1970s never saw wood paneling it didn't like, but I don't think I've ever seen that kind of paneling indoors. Was that just the whim of the set designer, or some trend that never took off beyond California beachside apartments? The Artifactoids. I doubt it was visible on 1974 television, but the article about the Greens going to the Greek Isles reads, in part, future plans will of necessity have great bearing on the situation as it now stands. Decisions will have to be made of the actual planning of the project will take considerable time, but it is felt that these steps are very important. This slug text is from Earl Hayes Press and is also found in a common prop newspaper seen in everything from The Goonies to Married with Children to that 70s show. And also the Tokarev 7.62mm semi-automatic pistol is a real gun of Soviet origin. It was hard to tell from the quick cutaway shot at the golf course, but the prop gun depicted really is a Tokarev. All right, what worked? The mystery was fun, but what I really enjoyed in this episode was watching Rockford's 70s-style social engineering hacking, gaining access at the tennis club, first by getting past the gate with mail for Mr. Smith, then by finding reference to club members who were most definitely out of town. I also enjoyed James Woods as a spoiled brat. What didn't work? Well, I don't know if I'd say that it didn't work exactly, but I was disappointed that the pilot was so full of interesting real locations in Los Angeles, and as soon as it went to series, it appears the locations have become fictional. For example, online, the only references to the owl in Turtle point either to a San Francisco restaurant of that name or to the Rockford Files. Next time, the episode will be The Dark and Bloody Ground. Happy hunting! So... 1974 standards and practices were cool with beat the poo out of me. I wonder if that was edgy at the time. All right, this episode is called The Dark and Bloody Ground, and it originally aired September 20th, 1974. Brief summary. A man is killed in his motel room, and his wife is accused of the murder. Jim is reluctantly hired by the wife's defense attorney, who is working it as a charity case. Husband and wife were at a Tony Bell Air party the night of his death. Multiple attempts are made on Rockford's life once he starts looking into it. After Rockford begins looking into the party, one of the hosts is killed, and Rockford realizes the true identity of the original victim and confronts his killer. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. Hey, Jim, this is Louie down at the fish market. You gonna pick up these halibut or what? All right, who is? Guest star Walter Brook, who played Clyde Russell seven years earlier, uttered the immortal line, Plastics, to Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate. But today, I'm going to have a look at Noah Beery Jr., who plays Rocky, Jim Rockford's father. Noah came from a showbiz family. His uncle, Wallace, made his way from circus work with Ringling Brothers to stage musicals on Broadway to the early days of film. Noah's father, Noah Beery, worked in silent pictures and some early talkies. 
Before appearing on The Rockford Files, Noah appeared in a long list of TV and movie westerns, where he was known for typically playing affable sidekicks to the leading man. On television, he did guest spots on shows like Rawhide, The Real McCoys, Wagon Train, Gunsmoke, and Bonanza. He received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1960 for his contributions to the television industry. He appeared in films like Red River, Rocketship XM, The Story of Will Rogers, The Fastest Gun Alive, and Inherit the Wind. After The Rockford Files, he made appearances on The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, Magnum P.I., Trapper John M.D., and Murder, She Wrote. He had a series regular role on soap opera The Yellow Rose and appeared in the film The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. He retired from acting and passed away in 1994 at the age of 81. All right, totally 70s. Those gas prices. Obviously, there was fluctuation in the 70s, but these are lower than I've ever experienced, and they were obviously just incidental in the background, so it's the actual prices from the day of shooting. And these are the higher California prices? 57 cents regular, 60 premium. The cheapest I ever paid per gallon was 98 cents, and that was in Laurel, Montana in the early 90s. Alright, some artifactoids. Speaking of gas, I was interested to see a standard Chevron station. I don't know tons about the breakup of standard oil, and I'm accustomed to growing up seeing Amoco signage with standard on it. I've only ever seen Chevron branding on Chevron signage. The article on Wikipedia actually uses these two as the examples. Standard Oil of California became Chevron and served much of the West and parts of the Southeast, while Standard Oil of Indiana became Amico and served my home state of Minnesota as well as most of the states that I visited as a younger child. I also noticed an iconic 76 ball, and a brief look at the Unical wiki shows that it merged with Chevron in 2005. Lastly, a scene was depicted at the Clocker's Corner restaurant at the Santa Anita Park racetrack. I see at the America's Best Racing website that the restaurant opened in 1934 and as far as I can tell has always been a breakfast-only joint. What worked? I'd highlight Rockford's interplay with this cast of supporting characters this time. Rocky, the cop Dennis, the lawyer Beth all play scenes back and forth with Jim. I have enjoyed his interplay in the first few episodes with one-off characters, but I am enjoying scenes with some of the close supporting characters as well. What didn't work? I am aware that the car chase is a continuing staple of American film and television, but the car chases in this show were interminably long and somewhat dull. I know that a couple of years ago I watched Bullet from 1968, which has a car chase considered to be among the most iconic and influential, and it also seemed to be somewhat dull to me. Does one have to be a gearhead to enjoy this, or am I just used to late 70s, early 80s car chases with all the cheesy gimmicks of fruit vendors and workers walking with glass panes? Well, next time is an episode called The Countess. Happy hunting! Whoever wrote the fish market guy in the answering machine gag may not know fish. Even the smallest halibut, the California halibut, is about 40 pounds each. And Rockford's got multiple ones waiting at the fish market? I don't think so. This is The Rockford Files, Season 1, Episode 3, The Countess, and it originally aired September 27th, 1974. A brief summary... 
Rockford is working for a woman known as the Countess, real name Deborah Ryder. He's trying to prove she's being blackmailed. When he eventually confronts Carl the blackmailer, they get in a fistfight, then someone shoots Carl from the hills above the beach. Rockford was unable to catch the killer, and the police like him for the murder. Rockford must avoid not only the police, but also Carl's cousin in the mob who thinks Rockford was paid to kill Carl, plus the real murderer as well. funny. I ain't laughing. You're gonna get yours. Who is? I still have a lot of heavy hitters to profile who are involved in the show on a week-to-week basis, but in the interest of time, I'm looking at the guest stars again. When I saw Terry, the tennis pro, I thought to myself, that'll do, pig. Okay, that's a lie. I actually thought, he looks really familiar, and when I looked up the cast for the episode, I discovered he was played by James Cromwell, star of the movie Babe, among others. I also thought the same of Carl, the blackmailer that he looked familiar, not the pig thing. So I'm looking at Dick Gautier. I was first introduced to Dick Gautier in reruns of Get Smart, where he played Jaime the Robot. Prior to that, he originated the role of Conrad Birdie in the original Broadway production of Bye Bye Birdie. The same year that he guested on The Rockford Files, he appeared as Kolchak's swinging cruise roommate in the Werewolf episode. He appeared as Robin Hood in 13 episodes of When Things Were Rotten, then did guest spots on The Hardy Boys' Nancy Drew Mysteries, Wonder Woman, Happy Days, and Matlock. He made frequent appearances on celebrity game shows like Tattletales, Match Game, Win, Loser, Draw, and Password, and then had an extended career in voice work like Transformers, G.I. Joe, The Smurfs, and Foofer. He passed away January 13th of 2017. This aged poorly. It's not portrayed as 100% okay, but Carl is messing around with a 17-year-old girl in the pool, and it still takes Mike Ryder a few minutes to go break that up. Artifactoids. I'm not absolutely certain, but I think Rockford is using a Sony Portapack camera system. It sounds like it cost about $1,500 at the time. It recorded onto half-inch magnetic tape, the same width as consumer videotapes later on, only this tape was a reel-to-reel. $1,500 $1,500 in 1974 is almost exactly $9,300 in today's dollars. What worked? I enjoyed seeing Gretchen Corbett as attorney Beth Davenport appearing in her second episode in a row. Dennis the cop is joined by a cop named Deal who really wants to put Rockford away on Carl's death, making a nice contrast between Deal and Dennis, who more than once has been friendly with Rockford while still being antagonistic as well. What didn't work? Actually, I, I think it all works pretty well. Initially, I wondered whether the mob involvement put one too many interests in the field, but I think it adds to the chaos of the episode in a good way. It's not too much of a stretch to see Mike Ryder, the Countess's new husband, as the killer in the end, but I really don't think that's a problem either. So next time is the episode Exit Prentice Car. Happy hunting! Nothing like excruciatingly dull foot-long hot dog talk to get someone to go away. This episode is called Exit Prentice Car, and it originally aired October 4th, 1974. Brief summary. Rockford discovers a body in a motel room, checks out the situation, and then locks up and leaves. The body is his client's and friend's husband, Prentice Carr. 
Against fierce opposition from the cops in the small town of Bay City, Rockford investigates the last day's apprentice car while also taking a look at Mrs. Carr's lack of an honest alibi. Who is? At some point, I need to hit James Garner, Mike Post, and Stephen J. Cannell, but I don't think today's the day. Perhaps I'll be getting to them when I'm not doing an episode every day. Definitely when I'm not coming up on a giant block of pre-records. Just on a whim, I'm picking the bottom-billed actor Heath Jobes, who played Jack Clark on the payphone in the lumberyard. I found that he's been in a bunch of recognizable titles. I don't know much about pay rates for extras versus actors who say one line versus something like this where he gets all the speaking lines in a sequence, but I imagine over the 25 years of his IMDb listings he did all right for himself. First credits were Ironside and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. In 1974, aside from this episode, he appeared in the Werewolf episode of Kolchak and on Bill Bixby's The Magician. A very Fox Mulder kind of year, if you know what I mean. Then... In order, there's Cannon, Adam-12, Emergency, and Kojak. Closer to the end of the list, in the late 80s and early 90s, there's Hill Street Blues, two episodes of Max Headroom, and an episode of Night Court. His credits are listed a lot of places, but I didn't find anything to indicate his age or whether he's even still alive, but his last screen credit was 1992's TV movie In the Arms of a Killer as Parking Attendant. An actor of this level doesn't get much internet attention, so I'll just use my imagination and decide that he is now playing Lear in community theater, somewhere in middle America. I don't normally do my favorite line for Rockford, but I did have one, so here it is. Cataloging my virtues won't work either. I hold them to a minimum so they're easy to keep track of. Totally 70s. Tennis. I'm aware that tennis existed long before and since 1974, but there is a strong through line of tennis in what feels like almost every episode of this show. Artifactoids. Bay City is a location with a long history in detective fiction. Biggest of all is Raymond Chandler's fiction. Philip Marlowe was no stranger to Bay City, and James Garner is no stranger to Marlowe, having played him in a film of the same name in 1969. I've seen reference to Santa Monica being called Bay City, and sometimes it's used to denote San Francisco. Most of the time, though, I think it's a completely fictional town, not too far from Los Angeles. I'm feeling pretty sure that Rockford's Bay City is a direct reference to Chandler, and that Huggins and company would be perfectly happy if the audience believed they were one and the same. So what worked? I liked the constant stay out of Bay City message and Rockford completely ignoring it. I also appreciated the fact that while they pointed out that Rockford looked good for the murder, the show didn't repeat the plot of him actually being fully suspected, nearing arrest, and filed charges. I suspect in the next hundred episodes that will happen again, but this episode would be way too soon. I'm not sure whether the Lumberyard shooting scene was in any way fresh or original in 1974. I feel like in subsequent years there have been others, but in any case, I liked it. What didn't work? I'm still entirely unclear why the cops changed up the Prentice car killing to an apparent suicide. I guess possibly to reduce the amount of paperwork. So next time is the episode Tall Woman in Red Wagon. Happy hunting! Bare chested and wearing a jacket. Classy. This episode is called Tall Woman in a Red Wagon, and it originally broadcast on October 11th of 1974. 
Brief summary. After an opening in which Rockford and a couple of hired workers dig up an empty coffin and Rockford gets shot, apparently in the head, the episode then flashes back. Rockford has been hired by a woman, Sandra, to find her friend Charlotte, the titular tall woman. When they are told Charlotte is dead, Sandra can't let it go. It turns out the whole case revolves around a significant amount of money, possibly stolen, from a dead mobster Charlotte had dated. The trouble with the money was bad enough for Charlotte to fake her own death, and the search for the money got Jim shot. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. It's Lori at the trailer park. A space opened up. Do you want me to save it, or are the cops going to let you stay where you are? All right, and who is... Sean Barbara Allen plays Sandra, Jim's client. I might have passed right on to another person, but I saw the title of the movie she earned a Golden Globe nomination for in 1973, and I had to go for it. If you've lived in Duluth, Minnesota for any length of time, you eventually hear the title or read it somewhere. It's even on a mural at the North Shore Theater downtown. You'll Like My Mother, starring Patty Duke and Richard Thomas, and in a supporting role, Sean Barbara Allen, who apparently dated... Richard Thomas, for a number of years afterwards. This movie was shot at the Glen Sheen Mansion, here in Duluth. Sean was another one of those character actors that popped up in all manner of television and occasional movies. She appeared in Alias Smith and Jones, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Columbo, two episodes of The Waltons, playing Richard Thomas's love interest, Kojak, Ironside, Adam-12, Hawaii Five-O, The Incredible Hulk, and Beretta, for which she also wrote an episode, but not the one she performed in. She rounded out her acting career on L.A. Law in 1990 and then retired in favor of motherhood and has since worked as a writer, mostly short fiction and magazine pieces. This aged poorly. There's a whole section near the end of the flashback, which is pretty much the whole episode, where the two women discuss how Charlotte can attract all the eligible bachelors within range so Sandra can pick out a good one. Totally 70s. I'm not sure if it is indeed totally 70s, but I had to shout out Rockford's business card printing press he had in his car. Sure, you can more easily fake a business card today, no fussy ink and knife, etc., but could you do it on the fly in your car? All right, artifactoids. The hotel and restaurant where they hear of Charlotte's alleged death was Fred Harvey's Ranch House Inn in Valencia, Santa Clarita. This was built in 1970, following the construction in 1965 of the successful Ranch House Coffee Shop and Restaurant. All of it predated the opening of Magic Mountain Theme Park in 1971, but there's a roadside visible in the show that shows the exit off of I-5 behind them to Magic Mountain Parkway. The theme park was basically just behind them, though many of the landmark attractions that might have been visible were still a few years off in 1974 when this was shot. You could have visited this place until fairly recently. The buildings were knocked down in order to build two smaller and more modern hotels in 2019. Also, it amused me that I recognized a Bell telephone van flashing by behind them as they arrived at the train station just by its color scheme. I have absolutely no reason I can think of to remember this, but it's exactly the kind of thing I'm looking for when I watch older television. What worked? 
This cracked along well, with plenty of twists, and wisely left the mobster's men mostly to the sidelines. It had Rockford working his wits to con and cajole all the details needed to narrow down what was going on, and it had him telling tales to all involved in the end, even though he didn't have the answer at all. What didn't work? As much as I said I appreciated the loose end of what happened to the money, I didn't as much like the open-endedness of Charlotte's story. I also found myself wishing Stoner and Sandra each could return one day for some reason, but IMDB has already told me they will not. Next time is an episode titled This Case is Closed, and just FYI, it will be the first episode of The Rockford Files that I've never seen before. Like I said when I was starting out, I didn't necessarily watch these first six episodes closely, and it has turned out that I didn't remember any of them all that clearly. But from here on out, this will all be new to me. Happy hunting! I don't know which Los Angeles street they would shoot that on, but... It definitely looked, believably, like a 1970s Minneapolis street when they pulled up in front of that house. I should get down to business with The Rockford Files and an episode called This Case is Closed, originally airing October 18th, 1974. Brief summary. Rockford is working for a rich man, Warner Jameson, attempting to suss out what Jameson's daughter, Susan's fiancé, has been up to. As is often the case, we start out with Rockford in the middle of the case, apparently with his life at risk, then flash back to see what got him to this point. The fiancé, Mark, doesn't sound like a risk to Rockford, but Jameson is certain the guy is dirty. Rockford tries to close the case, but Jameson strong-arms him with the threat of using his connections to make Rockford's business and life very difficult, civically speaking. When Rockford starts digging, it sounds like Jameson is right, and everyone wants to know who Jim's client is. The mob and the feds are involved, but the only one in the dark about the whole thing is Rockford. After Jameson tells Rockford he convinced Mark to break the engagement and that he's off the case, he still has to shake a tail. Then Susan Jameson herself wants to hire him to find out why Mark broke the engagement. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. You really want Jim on the 7? Come on, that night couldn't go a mile on the back of a pickup truck. Call me. Who is? Well... I'm still holding James Garner, Stephen J. Cannell, and Mike Post in reserve for when I can take a little more time. This episode has legendary guest actor Joseph Cotton and legend on her way up Sharon Glass. Joseph Cotton was one of Orson Welles' original Mercury Player Theaters, and he appeared in a couple roles in Citizen Kane, as well as Welles' The Magnificent Ambersons and The Third Man. Sharon Glass started out with smaller television roles, including McLeod, Ironside, Adam-12, and The Bob Newhart Show. She worked with Stephen J. Cannell in Rockford Files in two roles, also in Black Sheep Squadron and TV movie Richie Brockelman, The Missing 24 Hours. After Rockford, she appeared in the Disney TV movie The Kids Who Knew Too Much and TV movie Revenge of the Stepford Wives, before being cast in 1982 in her iconic role as Christine Cagney on Cagney and Lacey, a series that played through 1988 and follow-up movies through 1996. Since then, she's worked steadily with series regular roles on Queer as Folk and Burn Notice, and single episode work through this year, guesting on Station 19 in February. This aged poorly. 
I know this spot is meant to highlight a cultural attitude of casual racism or sexism, but this time I'm going with the bumping Jim did at the lot gate at the beginning of the episode. These days there's no way a convertible waiting at a stop arm would let that incident go by with a simple exclaimed, hey. Heck, a guy rolled his junker pickup truck back into my junker Scion XB on a hill and we both got out, took a peek at the bumpers before shaking hands and agreeing to let it go, just a few weeks back. I suppose it's also possible this whole thing was glossed over for plot convenience, though. Totally 70s. Okay, this is almost an artifactoid, but it's thin and I didn't really find a totally 70s theme item this time. The Holiday Airlines desk is briefly seen at the airport at the start of the episode, and that does kind of lead into the artifactoid, so stay tuned. Holiday Airlines only had a three-plane fleet in its short history from 1965 to 1975, three turboprop planes that flew service to Tahoe from L.A., Long Beach, Burbank, and San Diego, among a few others. And the artifactoids. Lots of 70s gas stations visible in this one. Rockford even stops at a Union 76 in this episode. But I wanted to look at Los Angeles International Airport with its googie design theme building depicted as the airport to which Rockford returns from New Jersey. Once they cut away from the stock footage, he's depicted in a rather unremarkable hallway. Wikipedia states that in this period, Colombo shot at LAX, so it's conceivable this was shot at LAX, aside from that plainness. Now, admittedly, I was a little under a year and a half old at the air date of the episode, but looking at the internet now, I can't find any images of LAX that didn't have at least a raised ceiling in the concourses and ticketing areas. It's possible they erected a set, or even used a permanent airport set on a backlot somewhere, but the presence of the Holiday Airlines desk has me wondering whether the interiors were in fact shot at Burbank or Long Beach. A few more image searches later, and bingo, it appears that this scene for this episode was almost definitely shot at Burbank Airport. What worked? After the first few more lackluster car chases in recent episodes, the sequences in this episode where Rockford loses tails feel more urgent and interesting. I think they seem to portray more speed. Plus, there were intricacies involved in losing the tails that were of more interest than a simple one car driving fast away from another. I like the realism, also, that Rockford isn't always spot-on when recalling license plate numbers later on. What didn't work? Well, if the writers intended us to believe that Susan Jameson killed Mark as Rockford told Warner, it didn't work. In my opinion, at that point, it was rather obvious that Warner was the trigger man, but I'm not entirely certain they meant us to believe it, in which case, it was all right. Next time is an episode called The Big Ripoff, and it would be great if Rockford was using his demonstrated knowledge of cons to bust a con man. Happy hunting! Seriously, like, I knew it wasn't the first bump the Scion had taken, and I counted at least two other colors of paint on his bumper, so really, letting it go felt like the easiest. Tonight... I'm looking at The Big Ripoff, which originally aired October 25th, 1974. Brief summary. Rockford has been in France working on a case in which a woman, Nancy Fraser, thinks a dead man was killed by his wife, Ginny Nelson. On his return, he is instead convinced that the man is alive, based on the fact Ginny is living off interest from half of the life insurance payoff. When Nancy Fraser dodges paying Rockford for the case, he moves on to the life insurance company, offering to recover proof of the fraud, some $400,000 worth, for a small expenses reimbursement and a finder's fee. 
He tracks Nancy Fraser to a small artist community, where he then searches for Nancy and Mr. Nelson with aid from an artist's model he picks up while she's hitchhiking. In the end, he finds Mr. Nelson, but comes out with about eight of Nelson's so-called primitive-style art paintings and nothing else. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. It's Andra. Remember last summer at Pat's? I've got a 12-hour layover before I go to Chicago. How about it? Who is? Well, there's lots of guest stars in this one, starting with Suzanne Summers in an extended sequence without dialogue in one of her first credited roles. Rockford picked up artist's model Maryland, played by Jill Clayburgh, also destined to become a much bigger star later in the decade. I enjoyed seeing Bruce Kirby as gallery owner Carl. He was a hardworking character actor who you'd probably know as that guy. He's also notable as being actor Bruno Kirby's father. This aged poorly. So Rockford went to a tiny town far outside L.A. and just started dating a model he picked up on the side of the road, presumably never to return to town. Sure, it didn't seem to imply that anything happened between them but a chaste-looking kiss, but still. Totally 70s. The pay toilet. Most pay toilets in America were discontinued in the 1970s. They were seen to be discriminatory, as men's room facilities tended to be mostly free-use urinals with a single pay stall, while ladies' rooms were exclusively pay stalls. Pay toilets were campaigned against in the 1970s, and several states banned them outright. Their numbers were greatly reduced by the end of the 1970s. Artifactoids. I'm not going to gush about the Bell telephone vans, but there were a bunch of them in an early shot in this episode. They found a very French-looking section of backlot for the opening sequence, but used a fairly American product in the grocery bag. Rockford is holding a bag with Mrs. Cubison's Cornbread Stuffin', which was introduced to the market in 1955. Sophie Cubison and her husband ran commercial bakeries for many years, much of which was Melba Toast and other crackers, of what might be called health food later on. Bran crackers, soy crackers, coffee substitutes, and such... The stuffing line was started with broken pieces of Melba toast and expanded to the cornbread stuffing scene in this episode. The brand is still active with a wide range of bread-derived products like croutons and stuffing mixes. So what worked? This was another great one, with Rockford working hard through all of the traveling, tailing, dealing with unfriendly local police. He ultimately came up correct about all his theories and with almost nothing to show for it. They did a good job of compressing the beginning of the story, showing Rockford scheming to get, gain Mrs. Nelson's trust without needing to spell it all out. What didn't work? Well, storytelling efficiency aside, I really would have loved to see Suzanne Summers in more of a role, but I do understand she was really just starting out, and likely was cast for her look. I also found it odd that Jill Clayburgh was top billed among guest stars, and it was yet just a woman that Jim ran into incidentally, having no real bearing on the plot. Also, I wasn't clear on why Rockford was hired in the first place. Unless I'm confused, didn't Nancy Fraser already know Mr. Nelson was alive? Next time. The episode will arrive outside of the Dog Days of Podcasting and will be called Find Me If You Can, which ideally must involve Rockford on the hunt for someone as slick and smart as he is, I hope. Happy hunting! This show has some of the grainiest stock footage ever. Did people really suspend their disbelief that much that it's not distracting? Eh, right, I suppose maybe 20-inch screen at 525-line resolution. Maybe not even in color, but still, jeez. 
from the heart of autumn almost 50 years ago, airing November 21st, 1974, The Rockford Files Season 1, Episode 8, Find Me If You Can. Brief summary. Barbara Kelbaker, played by guest star Joan Van Ark, hires Rockford to see if he can manage to find her. It does not take Rockford long to figure out she is scared and is using him to test if someone can find her, and she definitely does not want them to succeed. Digging deeper, Jim discovers she's on the run from a former boyfriend, Ralph Correll, played by guest star Paul Michael Glazer. Correll runs a trucking firm, but also has a reputation for tough dealing and Barbara witnessed Carell killing a man. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. This is the blood bank. If you don't have malaria, hepatitis, or TB, we'd like to have a pint of your blood. Who is? I'll go ahead and briefly touch on the guest stars. Joan Van Ark appears first in the top-of-show guest credits, but her name is spelled A-R-C instead of A-R-K. It seems odd to be listed top-of-show but misspelled. I thought maybe this was early in her career, and she or her management was trying something with her name. But she'd been working stage and screen for over ten years at this point, so it looks like it could have been a legitimate error that made it all the way to broadcast. Anyway, she was about four years out from her breakthrough television role as Valene Ewing, first on Dallas, but then for 13 years on its spin-off, Knott's Landing. Paul Michael Glazer was only a year away from his premiere as Dave Starsky on the hit cop show Starsky and Hutch. Still coming at some point in this category will be the biggies, Mike Post, Stephen J. Cannell, and James Garner, but once those three are done, we'll mostly be back down to guest stars with the occasional recurring cast member, I'd imagine. Totally 70s category. Okay, this one will be short this time because it's pretty obvious and not purely 70s, but I just wanted to say payphones, payphones, payphones. Artifactoids. I'm not clear on the establishing exterior shot of Denver office buildings just before Rockford tries to meet with Carell. My lovely wife, Darcy, grew up a mile or so from Stapleton Airport, and she confirmed the terminal building stock footage to be authentic, but found the generic office buildings difficult to identify. This was about a decade before the iconic Norwest Center cash register building would be completed, so there's a decent chance this set of buildings was filed under stock footage, cityscape. What worked in this episode? I appreciated that the story was advanced by Rockford not following instructions and digging into the facts when he was only supposed to be seeing if he could find Barbara. I liked Glazer as the heavy. I haven't really seen him act much, and he made a good impression as a bad guy. What didn't work? I generally found Barbara to be a damsel in distress, but not much more. Van Ark did okay in the role. It was just the writing that let the character down. Of course, it is continuing to build Rockford's reputation as a sucker for a damsel in distress. I also am getting a little bit tired of Rocky telling Jim to get out of the business. I understand it's a bit for his character, but I'd like to see more interaction between them than just the protective father trying to get his kid in a safer line of work. Hopefully somewhere in the six seasons they decide to reduce the frequency of this character trait and give Rocky some extra dimension. So next time, we'll be looking at Season 1, Episode 9, In Pursuit of Carol Thorne. Happy hunting! 
Hope you have been listening to the One Idget's Thoughts On podcast produced by Paul Mackey in association with Nimlas Studios. Any short clips of audio from shows is included under fair use for commentary purposes and copyright for that content remains with its original copyright holders. The theme song is Too Good by Jack Mangan and is used by his generous permission. One Idget's Thoughts is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. You can find more episodes of this podcast and many other fine podcasts at nimlast.org. You can contact me by emailing idgetcastpodcast at gmail.com or commenting on episodes at nimlast.org. So random beach dog from the top of show credits doesn't get a call back? It would have been easy just to have Rocky say he had to throw out the spare ribs because a dog was chewing on them.